Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by second-year Bard MBA student Martin Freeman, and we're speaking with Adam Kearney, serial entrepreneur and CEO of PropsBoard. Thank you, Adam and Martin, for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me, Katie. I appreciate the opportunity to be here to, to interview Mr. Adam Kearney. Uh, currently, he is the CEO of Props Board, uh, as well as a board member of the uh, Hanna Center at Fabard. I was just reading a book the other day um, called Smart People Build Things, and they were talking about how young people uh, such as yourself and us uh, as this generation don't build any things anymore. And I, I, felt, I felt a little skewed by that because I was like, you know, I, I want to build something. I want to be a part of something. Um, but that leads me to ask you, how how does one become not only a entrepreneur, but a serial entrepreneur such as yourself? How, how does one do that? Yeah, first of all, I agree with you on the, the you know, the millennial, let's say, um, uh, uh, people like to kind of shoot down on them and so on and so forth. Um, you could, there's so many studies that there's actually very little difference between generations. The only the most frequent thing is that every generation likes to hit on the one below them. Um, but the, uh, yeah, no, I've always been, um, I think it's just an inherent human drive that people want to build things and do things. Um, so that's always there. The, the difference is where you choose to direct it. You know, some people go into nonprofits. Um, some people like going into the corporate world, uh, and everyone has their different reasons of where they go and why they do so. Um, but the uh, for me, you know, I just um, have a thing that I don't, I don't, I, I work incredibly well alone, uh, or at least with a lot of pressure and load on my shoulders. I kind of push myself more than if I'm in a classroom. So there's a little bit of a personal thing that I, I like, like I probably shouldn't have gone to Bard or shouldn't have gone to school, like a normal school. I probably should have been like a homeschool type of student um, that just wasn't an option or nor did I realize <laughs> I was that kind of person, but like I, I should have. And uh, so currently now, like I'm teaching myself to code and um, like uh, it's just, I take on a lot more than if I was to, to be in a classroom. Um, and it just because my own passion pushes me and I don't think anything beats uh, if passion is your drive, um, it, you just, it overwhelms everything. So for me, I mean, there's the personal side, which is like, I just really love to build things. Like even before this, I was, I was a woodworker. So um, getting my hands dirty and building things was always great. I love puzzles, like solving things, um, uh, like actual problems and trying to help people. So when I was in high school, I did a, there's a kid that was uh, in our community that um, was in need. He, he became um, uh, paralyzed in a, a football game uh, from the neck down, um, just oh, a backyard wow. football game. And uh, so I didn't really view the nonprofit or, you know, the spaghetti dinner to be enough to help his family. So I actually started a small business, uh, ran a concert thing, took all that profit and donated the $96,000 profit to his family. So they got everything. Um, so like I've always been obsessed with community tied with business um, and I like just building things. 
Uh, I ran t-shirt companies, you know, you name it, I did it at a bartending company. Like I just always have been doing something. Um, and then there's kind of like a couple attributes that you need to kind of carry you through those, which is you need to be relentless about everything you're doing. You, like nothing, like when you're running into problems or failures or anything like that, you just need to keep going. Then you also have to be really, really comfortable with the unknown. This is where most people um, would, I would say, causes a dividing line as being an entrepreneur. If you're not comfortable with things that you don't know or what are, is around the bend, um, it's probably not for you. If you're really curious what's behind that next wall, <laughs> even though it might knock you out, uh, you're probably well suited to be an entrepreneur. And then the last thing is just that, again, that willingness to fail um, a lot. Uh, yeah, if you're totally yeah. comfortable with that. And I've never, I, did, I have dyslexia, but I didn't know until I was 21. Um, so I was never the smartest kid in the classroom. Um, and that kind of built, I guess, for me, my reading of it is I'm totally fine with not being the smartest person in the room. So I don't care about screwing up and learning from that like really quickly and publicly, uh, which I've done over and over again. So um, those things. And then there's like a tactical side of becoming a serial, a serial entrepreneur, which is um, you just have to like to build things. I mean, once you do one thing, you do two, I guess you're technically serial. So uh, the, the, the core part is if you're actually an entrepreneur and those things fit, you'll just start building and it, it will just come along. Um, and the tactical things back to like that kind of community and the accelerator and the boot camp is a, probably the best tactical way to get into anything. Uh, it's definitely to figure out a way of building a network um, that will become reusable. Uh, it becomes incredibly helpful for everybody. Um, so the best way I think to do that is always to like give before taking. So uh, for the, you know, the boot camp, I volunteered. Every mentor that was a part of it was a volunteer. Um, so all of that was let's give into the community and then, you know, something might come back, but you don't know it, but you, you hope that something would come back, but you but don't look at a, it. There's a good chance do that. that it might. Yeah. And, and in that process, um, a lot of the companies in Philly benefited, uh, you know, these companies that failed then needed places to go work and they were great employees. <laughs> so uh, they were really excited to get these awesome employees um, down the line, but they had no clue who that was going to be or when it was going to be or if it would happen at all. And then from that, that came back and worked well for me because these CEOs were happy that they were getting really good employees. Um, and then from building the program and making their lives easier, you know, they get tons of emails that of people asking for help and that we provided a system and a framework for people to fall in no, ma no matter what part of the path you were on. Um, it just made their lives a little bit more efficient and easy. Um, so from that, I was able to build all these relationships in Philly uh, that now extends um, all the way up here into New York and out to Silicon Valley that I would have that I didn't have growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, and even coming from Bard, I didn't know one developer, I didn't know how to code, I only had very small savings, like three thousand dollars, so I didn't have much yeah. money, I didn't have anything to do. So um, uh, most people would kind of walk away, but the odd angle is work harder and give away your time and money um, and somehow hope hope it comes back. Yeah. And, and, and Adam, let me just say, you know, listening to your answer and your response on, on how uh, does one become a serial entrepreneur, I heard a couple of things. I heard relentless. I heard comfortable with the unknown. I heard um, being comfortable with what's around the bend. Um, but I think one of the most important things that, that you, you stated was failure. Right, like how do how does someone be comfortable with failure? And 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 quite frankly, when is the last time you failed at something? Because I mean, to us, to most people, you seem quite wildly successful. When is the last time you actually failed at something? 
setting yourself up to push yourself and be comfortable with potentially failing is definitely the most important thing. Um, and then like, so I feel on a daily basis, the, uh, it's safe to say that the, uh, a daily basis. That I, <laughs> oh yeah. And, and those are like the small everyday failure kind of things. Um, that definitely <laughs> happens. And, and I, I, I hope that I could learn at least once a week, uh, from one right. of those failures, that's going to be a lesson that will sustain itself through, um, uh, through time rather than just like the mere surrounding of, Oh, that's how that was a bug in the code or something like that. Like something that actually, uh-huh. uh, becomes a framework of how I think and becomes part of who I am. Um, if I could learn one thing a week from my, my failing over and over again, it'd be fantastic. But in terms of like a big failure that recently happened would be the, the current company I was running. Um, so the way that this current company happened is I was actually applying for a job and uh, a mentor just offered me, um, the, the person I was applying the job for, um, just offered me money to start a new company. Um, so we kind of inherited this product in the end from, uh, that they, we spun out of their company. So from that, I kind of inherited the problems of it. And I was also never worked in the HR space. Um, so the, the product primarily was an employee like recognition platform. And we would broadcast recogni- the recognition that occurred in the platform up to everyone's office TVs, just so recognition would be visible inside of an organization. And it causes kind of network effects and reminds people to, to be positive and to, sh- to show appreciation for your fellow employees and teammates. Um, but there was a lot of difficult problems in that situation. To boil that down, I'll take the biggest one. There was a bunch of problems. But the biggest one was the HR space is kind of a checkbox industry. And what I mean by that is um, they're like, okay, we gave balloons to somebody for doing a good job this year. Check. Like, that's it. That's all they had to do. Wow. Um, it's, not, wow. It's, not an, it's not an industry that's um, looking at an ROI of like, ooh, here's how we could be innovative to get 10% more recognition this year than we got last right. year. Um, okay. So it's very, very difficult um, to sell into these organizations uh, because basically they would have one product from the past and they would still be using it and because the checkbox was filled. So they just weren't looking. So um, it was really, we tried so many traction angles um, to get into these companies and the ones that we did get into, we took off. We would completely t- sweep the company. Our engagement was insane. So we were, we were thinking, oh, we just have to figure out this traction. Spent way too much time thinking about that. We were totally wrong doing that. So in the end, we were like, you know, money was getting tight and I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. And what I boil it down is that it was the checkbox industry. Um, and then uh, what we have that we learned out of all these fail, failed kind of uh, missions is that the TVs are really important to the engagement. Second thing is when I was talking to investors, they're like, uh, they're looking at our company and they're like, your engagement's insane. And I was like, yep, it's because of the TVs. Because if we took the TVs down, our engagement would drop 6x. Um, so basically, I just flipped our problem upside down. So rather than looking at it, taking a recognition product ourselves and having a uh, competitive feature of a sort of having the TVs, I just made the TVs our products. And then I went out to all our competitors who are recognition services, said, hey, I know that 60 to 90 days in, uh, your engagement just drops, like your honeymoon period is over. uh, And people forget to recognize people. Um, We'll build an integration of your product into our service and we'll broadcast it up to their company's office TVs. So you'll get better engagement and a higher deployment strategy. And then through that, uh, we flipped our distribution problem upside down. And now we're, I don't really have to do much selling because these organizations themselves are contacting their current customers and saying, hey, would you like this? And then they say yes. 
and then they just pay us and it's a self-serve. So uh, we went from having being blindsided and kind of really focusing on the wrong problem um, because we were really obsessed with our product um, and trying to own the entire thing. And then uh, because, you know, I was hitting a wall, I finally took a step back and even a little bit of a, a, a tension between me and my, my co-founder, whether we would make that switch or not. Because um, uh, it's doing biz dev is usually a long-term strategy and lucky that we were able to pull it off. Um, but yeah, so now we have partnerships with some of the world's largest recognition services uh, that like one company has 50% of the Fortune 500. Um, so we have very little competition now because we we are working with our competitors and then in this particular strategy, we're the only company doing it. So we're in this load space. So there's ended up becoming a tactical thing um, from Peter Thiel is a big guy in the tech world and he always says move away from competition. Um, so we kind of took that strategy and it, it's been been great ever since, but that was the last, you know, we in that eyes, you don't really realize you're failing when you're actually failing, uh, but it probably took us, you know, six months to see that problem, um, that that wasn't even a problem. Because um, you have a bunch of highs and lows, like we landed inside Comcast, like a massive company, and like spread in like within a couple of weeks, and then things came plummeting down. So, and then we were back in, and then we were back down. So with all the highs and lows, it sometimes comes really hard to see even when you're actually failing. Um, and mm -hmm. it's when you know you have to take that step back and keep deep breath and really be critical of yourself and what, what, what things are working and why they are and why they aren't and talking to people and learning as much as you can as fast as possible. Um, and then, make, then changing, then implementing a change rather than giving up because it's pretty easy just to, to give up when you have to radically change things or your entire process and product. Right, right. Um, that's amazing. Amazing how you flip that business model and strategy around to, to make it work for you and your company and yourself. Um, what's also amazing is, is how you you've kind of inherited this company and, you know, have turned it from, you know, basically uh, not performing as well as you would like it to, to now really just kind of in your nice little niche space. Right. And working with the, the competitors, like you say. Um, but what 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 actually interests me is you mentioned co-founders. And as a serial entrepreneur, um, I suspect this is just, you know, I could be wrong. But I suspect that you can't do it all by yourself all the time. Right. So what's what's your advice on selecting and finding co-founders? Um, and possibly could you speak a little bit to Connect Dome? Uh, I believe it was acquired in October of last year. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so I've been very, generally speaking, finding a co-founder is great. Um, uh, you don't have to, uh, but you would have to have the skill. You'd have to be a, co a developer if you weren't, and at least to be a tech company. Um, but uh, you'd have to have the skills that you would need to start it all by yourself. If uh, And if you don't have those, it's not even an option. Um, so if you're, when you're finding a co-founder, it's usually someone you've worked with in the past is a very common thing, a good friend, a friend of a friend, but someone you get to know a little bit before you even start working together. Um, there's a joke, you know, you could always get divorced, but if you're a co-founder, you share equity in a company together forever. So uh, you can't really get separated in that regard. Um, so you have to be, you got to be very careful when you're cho choosing your co-founder. It's, it's probably the top reason companies at least end. And it's not always just bickering and fighting, and that's going to happen. Um, it could be something as simple as like, so my co-founder of the Connectome, um, 
uh, you know, he was being recruited by Google uh, with a very good salary and benefits and all of that. Um, and, you know, time off and all of the, everything you would want basically for a, a nice lifestyle. Um, and in comparison, we were a failing startup uh, who had debt and no cash and we didn't know exactly what we were doing yet. Um, so, you know, imagine if he just walked away just because he needed stability in his life and which is totally fair. Um, that is like a very common way companies die. But luckily, uh, we stuck through it and we ended up selling that company in uh, last October. Um, but it's, you know, he's my, he's a very good friend now. Um, like he's at my wedding, um, just this, in June. Um, and, uh, Congratulations, so by the way, thank you. Um, so it's a very, I came across him from a friend. Uh, he was a friend of a friend and then we kind of hit it off. Um, but there's a lot of courting. It probably took me eight months or so. Um, and I just had to like separate myself. You know, I, I was the hated guy in the tech world, the guy that w had an idea, no, but couldn't build it himself. Uh, couldn't, uh, had no money and didn't know anyone that was willing to jump in on the project with him. Um, so I had to separate myself from pretty much a, an absolute cliche at you know every meetup or something you would go to um how do i separate myself from them so i just did a bunch of little things to to prove that i was serious um and uh through that i eventually courted him and he came part of it and uh, we started working more and more together in the end you probably spent i spent just as much time if not more with him than i did my my girlfriend and now wife uh, and <laughs> So it's it's not it's not easy. It's going to be be very serious about who you're going to work with. And a particular question that I always asked um, was, "Tell me about the shittiest job you've ever had." Uh, pardon my language, um, but the I don't really care what their answer is. Uh, but it's more to read uh, where did they come from, like what's their background, like uh, and how have they pushed themselves, and then what's their outlook. So my current co-founder of the new company, uh, he gave an awesome answer. He talked about him working at McDonald's and then hating people in high school. The teacher saying, what, do you want to flip burgers your whole life? Not knowing he actually flipped burgers. Um, and he, uh, so he didn't want to be that. And he thought he could do more. And he goes, uh, he, so he started teaching himself to code at like 15 years old. Um, and uh, like over 15, 20 years ago. And um, he, you know, from there, he said, like, talked about the people that he worked with and that he was still friends with them. And, you know, how crazy it was that he just, like, got into coding just for fun, not thinking about it as a career, just for fun. Uh, and how that put him on a completely different trajectory. It's the same people he grew up with and worked alongside and went to school with. Um, and uh, so he showed empathy. He showed he worked hard. He had ambition that he saw more of himself than what other people saw of him. Um, it was, like, exactly what I wanted. Uh, and he was also happened to be an amazing developer. So, um, so we paired up and again, he's uh, another one of my really good friends. He was at my wedding and uh, we hang out with each other all the time outside of work. So uh, finding a co-founder is really, really important, but incredibly difficult. And it's mostly just gotta get to know people. And again, getting back to that network, uh, both co-founders are found via my network um, and just hustling and trying to get to know people. Um, so, it's hard. There's no right answer, but the best thing is to try to build things, join hackathons, uh, work with people at work, like make sure you get to know people you're working with. You never know when things are going to come back around. Um, and uh, yeah, just be like open-minded, try to say yes to doing small projects at least uh, and figuring out, you know, can I work with this person and like testing it out and going from there. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, 
incredible advice. Um, almost is worth its weight in gold. Um, speaking of of coding, I know you mentioned it with with you. It's something that that you've been passionate about. It's something that your co-founder has been doing since he was fifteen. Um, and you're in the tech world, uh, so can you provide us with a few recommendations on some targeted courses to take if someone were to want to learn how to get into the tech world or learn something about coding? Um, you know, if they want to become like what I guess what they call a full stack developer or something like that, you have any advice on on those courses? Yeah, I one I would encourage everybody to learn how to code. Um, just even on a political basis, uh, a lot of companies, uh, you know, with artificial intelligence that's going to start demanding things, or uh, you know, self-driving cars will be here in three to five years and already are semi-what deployed. Um, just to be able to understand how those systems are working uh, and what could go wrong or what goes well, and the, the pros and cons of those uh, are going to become part of a political conversation. So even to be a good citizen. You should understand sciences and coding because it's more and more entwined with our life. From a career standpoint, it's even more so. Like every job, software, there's a classic phrase that software is eating the world. Um, so basically any job that you could imagine, software is going to eat it. Include, you know, your Uber driver is going to not be there anymore. And it's going to be a self-driving car. But then yeah, at the same time, yeah. if you have a, a, a Tesla in the future, um, you'll be able to hit a button when your car sitting around 90% of the time when you're not using it. And it'll actually be able to go out and make an income for you, uh, like an Uber driver, but you don't have to be there driving it. So there's pros and cons in that situation. You're going to lose a lot of jobs, but at the same time, a car that's just sitting around uh, in the meantime could actually go make you income. Um, so there's these kind of mixes. But anyways, with the uh, from a career standpoint, you should definitely learn how to code um, and just at least be able to work with developers and speak to them. Um, and if you also want to go start a new company or you want to run a nonprofit or do some type of project, uh, it's incredibly valuable just to know a baseline. For that, I would recommend for people to learn uh, Ruby on Rails. And the best way to do that is to use a um, – and, and I've taken pretty much every course in the world on that. And it's uh, the best one that I found is OneMonth.com has a course called uh, – uh, uh, yeah, Ruby and Rails, I think it's just the new name of the course. And then there's an HTML and CSS course. I just take those two, um, and that would just give you a basic understanding of how things work for everybody to do that. Um, then there's the second step, which I would still I heavily push everybody to do, but you don't have to do, is more of actually just learning how to be an engineer. In terms of the job market, uh, it's going to be uh, a lot more interesting. Um, the the job opportunities that are out there for engineers and the different types of companies is just so much widespread that you could choose where you go to work. And for someone like me that has, I just can't, if I was to go work for someone, I couldn't just go work for anybody. I'd have to like believe in the company. I'd have to like the people that I'm working with. And that's really hard in other positions to, you know, that you walking into a new market get to, to dictate those things. But engineers right, right now do. Um, so it, it, it definitely pushed that. And for that, there's uh, a quick way of doing it, but a costly way-ish uh, is boot camps. There's a Hack Reactor and App Academy or like the top or some and Flatiron School um, and Full Stack Academy. Those would be like some of the top ones. Um, and some of them actually do defer tuition. So you only have to pay a deposit and then they, you don't um, uh, pay your tuition off until you get a job. Uh, and then you pay a percentage of your first year salary and they average between like 90,000 and $105,000 a year only after three months of going through a boot camp. So you could go from knowing nothing to um, three months of the boot camp and then say three to six months after the boot camp, you'll have about a 90 some thousand dollar job. 
um, as an engineer. And, and those skill sets are just, you know, you could use it anywhere. If you wanted to go work for a solar company, you wanted to go work for with uh, like farms, there's so many different ways you could use it. Um, or you could work and build your own company, et cetera. Um, and then there's always the language debate. So the full stack is, you know, the job that you mentioned is a JavaScript stack. Um, and uh, full stack is basically that you could do anything from front end to back end. That's what it means. Right. Um, and uh, in JavaScript, I'd recommend Node.js uh, Node and uh, React.js, but I'm going to avoid the technical details because that's more up the line. Ruby on Rails is a really easy, clean, elegant language. Um, there's pluses and minuses, but like websites like the New York Times, Twitter originally, Hulu, you know, they're all Ruby on Rails. Either language doesn't really matter which one you do. Ruby on Rails is easier to learn, but harder to get a job in. JavaScript uh, is a lot easier. It's harder to learn, but a lot easier to get a job in. Um, because anything that's on the front end of a website is JavaScript. Um, and every single website has to use JavaScript at some point. So there's a lot more job opportunities and at different levels where Ruby on Rails is generally backend, and then that website would have to be using that on the backend. Um, and then they're usually harder to get in on the lower positions. Um, uh, so to get started might be a little bit harder. Uh, but yeah, I, the boot camps are a really valid way of doing it. I personally, uh, I'm kind of, I guess be honest about it. I, I Going through right now and getting into the boot camps, I have no plan on going. It's more of a PR thing <laughs> of just writing an article. Okay. I got into boot camps and chose not to go. Um, and I'm teaching myself. The best resource ever is a thing called CodeMentor.io. Um, it's a website, and it's you could get someone that would be like a $300,000 engineer in the United States that's living in Romania um, that you could get them for $60 an hour, which you would you could use them for only 15 minutes or whatever. And this is a extreme case. I'm just saying like you could get an unbelievable developer and they'll help you. Like you, you, they could point to resources or answer your questions and you could get like a full-time mentor through them. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of, and then through all, all the online resources, there's just so much things that you could use. Like with Rails, um, there's Michael Hartle's Rails tutorial, which you'll build Twitter from scratch. Um, so it's an amazing, there's so many amazing free resources out there now. And then when you need someone to answer a question, code mentors, you know, you can get someone for six bucks to answer your question rather than beating your head against the wall for the next 12 hours. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of cool resources out there and I'd highly recommend people for just their career basis. If, if you understand that you'll have a safety um, uh, job. And then the other thing is you'll have the power um, to actually choose the place that you want to go work and people that you want to work with. Um, and then if you want to actually build something, um, you would have the skill set practically to do that and avoid being me a couple of years ago of being a, a cliche. <laughs> yeah, a cliche. But, but Adam, you're, you're quite the gentleman and quite a scholar. Um, what? Tell me exactly what's a day in the life of Adam Kearney? Like, what does that look like for you? Oh man, I guess just to, to know that because I'm going to sound crazy here. Um, uh, to put in uh, a little bit of comparison, growing up, I would sleep in all the time. Uh, I my dad is a complete routine guy. Uh, he wakes up at the same time. He wakes up at 4:30 every single day. Uh, he goes to uh, Catholic mass every single day. Depending on what day it is, is the restaurant he goes to eat breakfast with and who he goes to eat breakfast with. Um, like everything is mapped out. And that used to freak me out as a little kid. Um, it'd be like, like, how could you just live your life and like being pushed through this system and so on and so forth. 
and it's so funny now because last year I've like totally become my dad. Uh, I wake up at the same time every day, <laughs> and beyond that, I have these. I have. Uh, I eat the same thing every single morning uh, and for lunch. And while I'm making my breakfast, breakfast and eating that, I make my lunch and dinner, and everything's planned out. So I don't have to even think about what I'm going to eat that day. Um, and uh, my wow. like workout routine, everything like that is, I guess, in a way like automated. Um, and in the whole point of it is like what I found in it is it seems routines routines seem like really. Um, uh, like kind of like that they hold you down and they feel limiting, but they actually free you up because you don't have to think about these like little petty things. Um, and you could actually focus on bigger problems in the day because you could basically only make so many decisions in a day. So why, if you, the moment that I opened up in my mind of, Oh, what do I feel like eating? I'm going to think like, Oh, a burrito. Um, and I should not eat a burrito every single day uh, that my heart would desire. So, uh, <laughs> but then I have to convince myself not to eat the burrito and eat the thing that I don't want. So then I'm not happy eating the thing that I don't want. Um, and I've exhausted my mind emotionally. Um, and it makes me less uh, able to do my job and actually think about these things. So anyone, the biggest pattern I've seen of like really good uh, thinkers and artists and so on and so forth is they, their routines are always different but they all have a routine. Um, like Maya Angelou had a cool thing where she'd wake up and she'd go write on a typewriter in a, a dirty hotel, like motel room. Um, Barack Obama doesn't choose any of his food or any of his suits and he only wears two types of suits. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg would wear the same color shirt. It's just to like remove any decisions you would have to make in the day. Um, and it yeah. just frees you up. So if I was to describe my daily life, it's the same thing every day. <laughs> it's just a routine. And then I try to figure out on the weekends, I have a cheat day that I can eat anything I want. And then because I live in New York City, and I'm like a country boy, I go a little stir crazy. Um, so I uh, go out and go camping or go hiking or something to get my head out of the city and away from people because I'm as much as I seem like an extrovert and like social, I hate being around people. Um, so I have to go to the woods for a little bit to like get away from selling and anything else. So um, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to sell anybody your secret. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I was drawn to you and props specifically is because even though in your email you expressed, oh, you're not really in sustainability, but you are. I see it as social sustainability. And hearing you speak about even when you were younger and trying doing this fundraiser for, you know, a fellow student that got injured, there's something in you that is trying to and executing sustainability for you know, humanity, the people around you, businesses. And I saw props as a way to keep, you know, the human resources um, sustainable at companies. So would you say that, is that a conscious thing? Um, do you see it as sustainability? Because I see what you've done with props and listening to you describe it as almost, you know, the Bloomberg um, media centers that they have everywhere, the terminals, but for, you know, social equity instead of just, you know, stocks and bonds and business. Yeah, uh, I mean, at a certain level, at the at least like base initial level, I just don't think about it at all. It's just kind of, you know, I guess me in a way, I just, it's just more natural to, to, to do these things. Um, and uh, I get like a little 
biographical thing too is like my my oldest brother when i was 10 um passed away trying to to uh save another person while hiking um so he so like through that i kind of like grew up my uncle you know he was a protested protested vietnam and uh, during the same time he had the give a damn program um and it was he just ran a community thing of going out and um uh helping elderly people making sure they could uh everything in their home was fixed or they had groceries and anything they needed uh and then he also would he found that a lot of group homes people would drop off um uh uh intellectually challenged um family members and basically forget about them so he would set up that people would basically quote unquote adopt these kids and just include them in all their family things. So growing up, like we had um, this this guy named Jackie who was at everything from birthday parties to just hanging out to Christmas. So he was like, I always thought he was a family member. Um, so I just kind of grew up in that atmosphere that you just pay it forward. And at the same time, we got it too. Like after my brother passed away, my good friend's dad um, never questioned anything. And uh, he was over, and we lived in the country, the very high point of Pennsylvania, a lot of snow, big yard, um, big driveway, big porch. And uh, he shoveled the entire thing and just left, like didn't even come in to say anything about it or he just knew to give us space so i was surrounded by that so i for me it's like i just don't even think about it even at a sustainable level it totally is um uh like caters into the sustainability kind of um view and i and i definitely live and believe that but i just don't i don't think about it like that i just try to do what i think is what what can i do and then is that the right thing to do and then i try to do it if, if those two things match um so that's kind of the lens I look through it. Um, and then the current company, there's definitely, I will admit, like it, it's a big hope that the sustainability and like the good feel, like there's a lot of, I did dive pretty deep in the psychology of um, different recognition systems and how they worked and pros and cons over the long-term, short-term stuff. And there's good things out there, but basically what I have is it's, it's technology and it really comes down to how the company uh, uses it. And it's so, for me, it's a fascinating thing to like see the difference between Comcast and this tiny startup in Philadelphia. So like to be able to see how one company uses it versus another one and seeing where like, for example, one company might be have an incredible culture. Another one might not really have one an incredible culture. That's not really um, supporting and sustainable, but they'll still be using our product. Like we could only uh, amplify what's already there. Um, like I, there's very little effect I could have uh, on something that isn't there, but if something is, is happening is to bring more attention to that. So that's, those are the days that are really good um, are when I could see these great companies falling into our product and using it right and using it well um, and people really like it and the engagement stays up. But um, I, it wouldn't be fair to say, you know, that we cause those changes. Those companies are just good companies and the employees are great. Um, and they, they're really, they probably even hate being called employees, but just more of like a team. Um, so I have to kind of tip my hat more to them. And that's, that's not me. I'm just trying to help them do what they do. Well, thank you for being humble but you do a lot. And I would say that you're inspiring, not just to students, but probably anybody that works in business and also hopes to be an entrepreneur. And it was such a wonderful conversation, Martin. Thank you for leading it. And Adam, oh, we hope we get to speak with you soon.
Yeah, thank you. And just before I go, uh, anyone um, that wants to contact or has any questions or any follow-ups, feel free to email me at uh, adam at adamkearney.co. The last name is spelled K-E-A-R-N-E-Y dot C-O. Uh, happy to answer any questions. Or if you're in New York City, meeting up or anything like that, uh, Bard's very dear to my heart. So um, anything I could do, I'd be happy to do. You can learn more about PropsBoard by visiting PropsBoard.com. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with Wendy Gordon, co-founder and CEO of Pips Rewards. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu.